Peace to you, brothers and sisters. I hope this message finds you well. We can't see each other or be right next to each other, but we are connected by the unbounded love of Christ. And in this text today, Jesus teaches that times like these might actually help clear the way for deeper faith, greater hope, and more profound love than we've settled for thus far. Let's look at the text. Mark 9, verses 30 to 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Well, let's first look at verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Now, in one sense, this is Jesus drawing from a kind of knowledge and wisdom that the disciples don't have. The disciples, they're just not getting a lot of even the basic stuff. But Jesus understands what it's going to take for him to do what he has been tasked to do. This is the thing that is going to lead him straight to the cross. The disciples either don't understand this or they don't want him to do this. But Jesus knows that this is, this is the way. This is inevitably the result of his teaching. But as we see this, we realize that this is true for a lot of heroes, right? I mean, Socrates had this happen. Socrates was making comfortable people uncomfortable when he was challenging their false understandings of wisdom. When I was in high school, I thought for a moment that Plato might have been a kind of pre-Christian prophet, And it turns out I wasn't the first one. I'm talking about a text in the Republic, Plato's Republic. Let me uh, give you what Yaroslav Pelikan says about this text in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, page 44 and 45. Quote, In the course of listing various pagan prophecies about creation, the Sabbath, and other biblical themes, Clement of Alexandria came to one prophecy in which he said, Plato all but predicts the history of salvation. This remarkable passage is from a dialogue between Socrates and Glaucon in Book 2 of Plato's Republic. 
Glaucon postulates that instead of beings who are both righteous and unrighteous, as most of us are most of the time, there would arise one unrighteous man who is entirely unrighteous and one righteous man who is entirely righteous. Let this one righteous man in his nobleness and simplicity, one who desires, in the words of Aeschylus, to be a good man and not merely to give the impression of being a good man, now be accused of being, in fact, the worst of men. Let him, moreover, remain steadfast to the hour of death, seeming to be unrighteous and yet being righteous. What will be the outcome? He shall be scourged, tortured, bound, his eyes burnt out, and at last, after suffering every evil, shall be impaled or crucified. Quote. Now, if you take all that and you just leave the eyes getting burnt out, you've, you've got a story of Jesus. And again, when I first read this line in high school, I was thinking, well, what, what on earth is going on here? But again, now I see that it's also just plainly insightful. In a corrupt world, the just are in danger of painful persecution. And so we can say to ourselves, ah, those terrible first century people, they didn't get it, the Romans and some of the corrupt Jewish leaders might have uh, not really, you know, been the kind of people that we would be in a similar situation. But it is true to this day that the just will find persecution, at least in some powerful corners of the world. Persecution can come both from within and also outside the so-called Christian world. As Woody Guthrie sang in his song, Jesus Christ, quote, Jesus was a man who traveled through the land, a hard-working man and brave. He said to the rich, give your money to the poor, but they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff, he told them all the same, sell all your jewelry and give it to the poor, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. When Jesus came to town, all the working folks around believed what he did say. But the bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on the cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. And the people held their breath when they heard about his death. Everybody wondered why. It was the big landlord and the soldiers that they hired to nail Jesus Christ in the sky. This song was written in New York City of rich man, preacher, and slave. If Jesus was to preach what he preached in Galilee... They would lay poor Jesus in his grave. Now, Guthrie's primary concern here was for the working poor. All right, I get that. But the criticism applies to any time in which those who bear the name and symbols of Jesus teach and live in a way that is diametrically opposed to Jesus' true way. That is, sometimes people come as wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus said. And it's worth asking, what if Jesus came to church with you? What would he say about what he saw? How might they receive him? Do you think that Jesus would think you really were his follower? But note in the text how Jesus goes on. He says, when he is killed, that is the son of man, after three days he will rise. This part of the story is not inevitable. At least it's not naturally inevitable. Plato could see that the just will be killed, but he did not know about the joyful turn of events. He did not know about the eucatastrophic surprise. This is Jesus' word that brings comfort. The previous word is self-evident and true, but not necessarily comforting. We sometimes fail to hear it, the message of hope, the message of the gospel, because we are too 
afraid to listen. We're too afraid to trust in the word. So note in our text that both death and resurrection were foretold, but the disciples couldn't hear the second part. They were afraid to ask more. This teaches us when we come before the Heavenly Father, not to be afraid to confront our fears. We can do this because the default is grace. We can become spiritually naked before the great physician. We can bear ourselves before God. We've got nothing that is going to surprise God. As terrifying as it is to be examined and to examine ourselves in the context of gospel, in the context of grace, the process is like a surgery that quickly leads to healing. In more specific terms for us spiritually, it leads to insight and to calm. My wife Stacy recently trained as a death doula. That's somebody who helps people at the end of life. They do not replace nurses or pastors, but rather help to coordinate a lot of these things and help provide certain aspects of care and guidance through the process when others can't be around. And one of the things she says about folks who are at the end of life, when they're regretting their lives or where they're facing their regrets, is that they regret not having faced reality about their life and relationships sooner. That is, they weren't really afraid of death. They were afraid of confronting their mother-in-law or really having that heart-to-heart talk with their spouse or their sister or their boss or, or whatever it was. We're afraid, and that traps us in ways that are unnecessary. It's as if, for Jesus here, when he's telling us about death and resurrection, it's as if the doctor wants to tell us that we've got a grave grave disease, but we run off in despair and fail to hear the part where he was about to tell us that he's also got the cure. The point is, God's way passes us through death and onto resurrection. God's own way was through death and resurrection in Christ. And so we ought to think through this death business seriously. For one thing, There's value in the death of our egos, our false selves, or our old Adam. This stuff that we kind of decorate ourselves with that is fleeting. And then there's the death of things we falsely cling to, power, money, and earthly glory. We've got no choice ultimately but to release our grip on these things that hold us back from true joy in Christ. And of course, there's actual death, which threatens to strip away from us absolutely everything we've worked to accumulate. You see, sometimes the law, the preaching of the law, doesn't just dismantle our self-righteousness. It demolishes our false gods, whether we like it or not, whether we're faithful or not. Those things that we clung to at one time, when death comes a-knocking, those things very quickly show themselves to not be as powerful or as potent as we had hoped. And it is precisely the letting go of our false gods that leads to the important line in verse 35, quote, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, sometimes when I hear stuff like that, I think, okay, so I got to, 
roll up my sleeves and I got to be real humble. And if I'm not humble enough, then I won't be exalted. And so I'm going to try to become great by becoming small. I get it. That's not the plan. That's not the way it goes. You need to experience that devastation to be lifted up. And it's not something you need to do. It's something that needs to happen. It's like the alcoholic hitting rock bottom. We need to spiritually hit rock bottom before we can really receive the unmerited favor of God that was for us all the time. But we resisted it because we couldn't hear the message. Maybe with the current pandemic, many of us will be forced to face our fear of death, literal death. Many more of us will also have to face a figurative death to face our fears of being losers, financial failures, the last in line, the lowest on the social ladder, the mass of helpless people. Well, there's been a mass of helpless people for some time. And maybe some of us are going to have to join it, depending on you know what our financial prospects look like. But by facing this, there is a chance that we can learn something important before it's too late. I heard about the anxieties of one elderly man who was relatively wealthy, and he said that he was more worried about losing the investments he'd worked so hard for all his life than losing his actual life. Now, I get it. He was up there in in years. But at the same time, what did he really want? What was his goal? He wanted to end up on top. He who dies with the most toys wins. He wanted to die a winner. He was terrified about going out as a loser, by which he understood the idea of being poor. And as much as I understand this man's emotional response to loss, we all feel this way often, Jesus offers us the gift of a totally different perspective. As Bob Marley once said, arguably with Jesus' teaching in mind, quote, some people are so poor, all they have is money. Now, there's a bit of good news just beyond the bad news of the law and its declaration that all shall witness the fall of Babylon. Luther described three functions of the law and emphasized the so-called second use, which points us to our need for Christ. In that sense, current economic uncertainties force us to let go of false security and turn instead to the Eternal One, who offers deep assurance. Note, that when the disciples started to argue about which of them was the greatest, Jesus says that the last will be first. This isn't about encouraging the disciples to exert willpower and become super humble. Instead, it's about repentance, which means waking up to reality, coming to our senses, letting Jesus demolish all our various towers of Babel so that the temple of faith can be built up on the leveled valley. Letting Jesus lead us through the way of death and to the field of resurrection. And so to illustrate what Jesus means, he turns once again to a child. And Jesus explains that if we want to relate properly to our Heavenly Father, that the kingdom of God involves living and relating as if we were children. Verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now, I remember one time when my oldest son, Augie, who's going to graduate this year, was fishing with me on the Skokel River. He might have been three. And as we were fishing, 
It's not really a great place to fish, by the way. But as we were fishing, he started to run towards some migratory birds, and they were all kind of gathered around on the bank of the river. And he started to run amongst them, and he just had the most delightful face, and he had his arms outstretched. And as they flew off, he tried to go with them. He thought he was going to go with the flock of birds. And as he turned around, he came to me, and he was looking sad. And I said, what's wrong, buddy? And he said, I'm too heavy. Now, look, we're not able to fly. I get it. But there's this way in which, over time, the childlike faith, the childlike wonder is taken away from us by an unfaithful world. This world that has taught us that faith is for suckers, that hope is a waste of time, that love is unwise. Society is desperately trying to get us to become cynical. But Jesus invites you to be like a child in accepting your new experiences of reality, acutely aware of the blessings all around you. Children are able to receive gifts, and they don't have any way to pay them back. And that's what makes it so delightful. That's what Jesus invites you to. He invites you to stop frantically striving, to stop panicking about being perfect, to stop obsessing about your accomplishments and your bank account and the nice house or car that you have, and instead begin receiving, receiving abundance, receiving grace, receiving the whole world, which is your inheritance. You are a son or daughter of heaven. Now, one last note about the part of our text where Jesus says, quote, he who is not against us is with us. Of course, look, there are interpretive traditions or denominations in this world that understand Jesus better than others. Some are just downright silly. Others are culty and toxic. But that doesn't mean that we consider those who aren't part of our organization or particular denomination to be enemies or part of a different faith altogether. Not if we're going to take Jesus seriously here. This text teaches us what Pope Francis recently said related to life in the church during the time of the coronavirus. He said that Christians can confess their sins straight to God and don't absolutely need a priest for private confession. This caused some Lutherans to joke on social media that he's 500 years late to the party that Luther started. But whatever, what I take from the final section of our text is something similar Uh, to this way of thinking. I believe that the text here teaches that God is in the public domain, that you can't copyright the Bible, you can't patent baptism, you can't slap your unique corporate logo on the Holy Spirit. No, friends, God adopts you as his own child. He gives you a healing word, the gospel, free of charge. He puts the seal of his kingdom the stamp of his logo on your heart in baptism. And he says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the body of Christ. You are the kingdom of heaven, and this kingdom will have no end. So fear not. Amen.